Good afternoon, Hey Boomer community. My name is Wendy Green, and I am your host for Hey Boomer. I have to tell you, I am a little nervous, anxious, whatever word you want to use today. Um, I'm preparing for today's show and thinking back on my divorces. I've had two. Um, it brought up a lot of feelings, right? It brought up feelings of failure. It brought up feelings of shame. It brought up feelings of sadness. And, you know, I, I think that when you consider all that's going on in the world is, and you think about what the people are going through in Ukraine and, you know, the Supreme Court taking away our rights and not taking away gun rights and the fact that the environment is in a state of disaster. All of those things make me think, you know, I, I, I didn't have it so bad. Like, why did I get divorced? Um, so I think that contributes to some of those feelings of failure and, and, you know, what went wrong and what could I have done differently and all of those kinds of things. And, I, you know, I think in a couple, you, you look for that sense of safety and security. And in a world like we're living in today, that sense of safety and security can be very meaningful. It can give you that safe place to come home to. So I think a lot of us still hold on to hope that that will be there for us and we won't have to be an island, um, that we can, again, be part of a couple. But... We're going to talk about all of that today with Jim Dant, and uh, I doubt that we are going to have all of the answers, but we will raise some issues. And I was thinking that if this raises issues for, for any of you and you want to talk about this after the show, um, you can email me at wendy at heyboomer.biz, and we can set up a time to talk. Um. So, support for Hey Boomer comes from Rhode Scholar, the leader in educational travel for Boomers and beyond. And two weeks from today, we are going to Glacier National Park with Rhode Scholar. And I know it's going to be a great trip, and I am hoping to be able to do some recording out there so that I can share some of the highlights from the trip and talk to some of the people out there and bring all that back to the Hey Boomer community. If you are interested in learning more about Road Scholar, go to road, R-O-A-D, scholar.org slash Hey Boomer. That takes you to their national park page. And from there, you can see all of the trips that they offer in all 50 states and over 100 countries. I also want to mention Real Eats. Real Eats is a um, totally organic um, food source where you get um, a, a protein, you get some vegetables, you get some um, other sides with it. Super simple to put together for a quick meal. It comes packaged in totally um, recyclable and compostable materials. So I, I highly recommend it. And the food is very good. Um, if you're interested right now, they have a special for July 4th. So you can go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, 
forward slash three, lowercase a, capital P, capital Q, lowercase uh, number one, lowercase v, lowercase b, and enter the code July 4, and you'll get 40% off um, on, on your next four orders, I believe. Yeah, your next four orders. I'm also going to put this link in the show notes. And finally, retirement. Retirement means endless golf or reading books or sitting by the pool, right? But how long before each day looks just like the last and you are terminally bored and you've lost your sense of identity, you've lost your sense of purpose? Well, what's next group coaching will help you find what, you, what will be meaningful to you in this next act of your life. And the next cohort will be starting on August the 2nd. I limit that to six people so that we can all benefit from individual conversations, individual coaching. You're going to get exercises each week. You're going to get a book. It's a really um, impactful. Everybody that has taken it has found it very useful. If you're interested in that, let's set up a conversation. 20 minutes just to see if it's something that is right for you or not. You can, again, email me at wendy at heyboomer.biz. If you're not ready to talk, just check it out on the website at heyboomer.biz slash coaching. Okay, so now one of your favorite things is these never too old stories. So let's start with number one. A chance encounter with some older backpackers in 1981 inspired three friends to walk the entire 2,650-mile Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada, one section at a time. Rees Hughes, Howard Shapiro, and Jim Peacock began this endeavor before they had kids and before they had major career responsibilities. As they were finishing up their first outing, where they had spent a month on the trail, they ran into some guys in their late 60s or early 70s who were hiking sections of the trail each summer. And they said to each other, I want to be one of those guys. So four decades later, they have completed the trek, not all at the same time, but they all joined each other for the final leg of their Pacific Crest Trail hike. In their experience, people do these long-distance hikes before they start careers and families and after they retire and their kids are grown. Howard Shapiro said, I don't think that hiking is a young person's game necessarily. It doesn't have to be, but it's easy to limit yourself. And Reese Hughes added, physically, I don't think that the challenge of the hike is the issue for most of us. I think the issue is more between our ears about what we convince ourselves what we can and can't do. So if you're ready for a hike, get out there, short, long, challenging, make it meaningful and relaxing and it's good exercise and it's good socializing. So get out there and hike. For story number two, June 13th. 85-year-old Jacqueline Wilson achieved a goal she's dreamed of for decades, graduating from Brock University 
with a Bachelor of Education Specialist degree with a focus on special education. She started at Brock in 1982 as a part-time student. By 1990, she was just one course away from finishing her program. That term, however, the course she needed wasn't offered and her studies were temporarily put on hold. During that time, Wilson's husband began to experience health challenges and her focus shifted. He passed away in 2019 after 60 years of marriage. Now Jacqueline is legally blind and experiencing post-concussion syndrome, but she worked with Brock staff and support services to set, to set up accessibility accommodations. Words are just so inadequate to express my sincerest gratitude, Wilson said of the Brock staff who helped her reach her goal of finishing her Bachelor of Education and Specialist degree. Congratulations to Jacqueline Wilson. Never too old, right? <laughs> so let me bring Jim on. Hey, Jim Dant. Hi, Wendy. So good to have you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, let me um, just do a brief intro and then we'll dive in. Uh, Jim Dant was born Jewish, christened Roman Catholic, baptized Baptist, and received his doctorate from a Presbyterian seminary. But we're not talking about that. <laughs> he survived a tumultuous childhood, riddled with divorces, adoption, and more divorces. Jim has had two mothers, seven fathers, and a host of step, half, and adopted siblings. But we're not talking about that either. <laughs> he is the proud father of three daughters and one granddaughter. Jim is a graduate of Georgia State University, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Columbia Theological Seminary. He has also enjoyed postgraduate studies at Princeton Theological Seminary, Hebrew College, Macon State College, and received certifications in group spiritual direction and Ignatian Retreat Direction at the Mercy Center in Burlingame, California. Jim currently serves as Senior Minister of First Baptist Church, Greenville, South Carolina, a church recently named one of the 100 most awesome churches in America. <laughs> he is also a writer and a conference speaker, and Jim and I are both divorced, and he is writing a book about divorce and the journey that it can take you on. So that is what we are going to talk about today. <clears throat> and of course, my first question to you when I looked through your biography is, you must have really struggled with the idea of a divorce, even, not, even if you weren't a Baptist minister, but with the background that you had. How did you come to terms with that? I, yeah, I think I can tell you more about the struggle than I could coming to terms with it. It's, you know, you come to terms with life because life, you know, deals you cards and you come to terms. But uh, yeah, it, it was a struggle for me. I was married for 30 years. And um, as you can imagine, growing up and moving through uh, divorces and foster care and adoption and your adopted parents being divorced multiple times, 
I, I don't know how many days I swore to myself in my own private thoughts or in my private prayers or even to other people that I, I will never be divorced. I'm not. I'm going to break this cycle in my life and my family's life. I don't want my children to go through this in any way. Um, and in fact, I've told people before within our uh, religious context that for me, marriage almost became an idol because I, I committed myself to the fact that that's the most important thing in the world is to to maintain a marriage, keep a marriage together. So, yeah, that was a it was a huge issue for me. And I, I think when you when you talk about coming to terms with it, um, I think when I realized that the marriage was at a place that it wasn't going to continue in a healthy space, I think it took me about two years of uh, talking with my own therapist and talking with another minister and kind of walking myself through a whole process. And um, it, it sounds, it might sound a bit, you know, mystical to some people or odd, but I can actually remember sitting on a park bench in the city where I was living um, in Washington Park was the name of the park and just thinking to myself or praying to myself, whatever you want to call it. I, I don't know that I can do this, even though I know it's the right thing to do. And um, I've never, I'm a minister. I've never heard the voice of God. I've never had that kind of a rumbling, you know, whatever from the heavens. But in the, the most quiet, peaceful way, uh, whatever the voice was, it was in my head that said, if you stay, I'll be with you and I'll be with her. And if you leave, I'll be with you and I'll be with her. Mm. And that kind of settled it for me that, that whatever, whatever was going on within me faith wise, that it wasn't going to separate me from my faith. It wasn't going to separate my wife from faith or God. Um, and that was probably the last hurdle I had to get over. My, my children were grown, so I, I didn't feel like I was putting them into a position that I had grown up in. So. Yeah, it was, but it, it's a struggle. It is. Yeah. It's a struggle. My children were small. Mm -hmm. um, they were two and four. And it was, it was hard. And I, I also did some counseling to try mm -hmm. and figure out what to do and how to do it. And, um, I, and I remember after the divorce, Jim, because I was so young, I, I remember after the divorce, um, telling the counselor, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to dig in and try and find out who I am and there's not going to be anything there. Mm -hmm. you know? I think that that's a common fear when you've been so, when you've been defining yourself as part of something and that, that something is no longer there. Um, fortunately, I found out I was more than empty, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, I think the breaking of, of our definition of ourselves as a couple is a big change. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, the, in some cases, I, I can't speak for every case. In my case, there was already a breach of seeing yourself as a common couple before the actual divorce occurs. And I, I think, I was older, so I was already in my 50s. And um, I think for me, it was I saw that I was a person and I saw that she was a person. It wasn't that I felt like there was some emptiness there. It's that I felt like there was 
some unique humanity and two unique human beings who were not able to be themselves within the context of that marriage for whatever reason. Um, um, you know, cause I, I don't want to go into the reasons of the marriage. There was no infidelity or anything like that. It was really two human beings who were struggling to live their life, but live it in relationship to another person. And for whatever reason, the other person couldn't, uh, allow the fullness of that life. So it was a little bit, a little bit different in that there wasn't, I wasn't fearful there would be an emptiness there. I actually realized that I, I had a life to be lived and it needed to be lived. And I felt the same way about my, my ex-wife's life. She had a life to be lived that needed to be lived. And we weren't healthily doing that together and could not, I did not feel like we could find a path to do that. So, so what I also learned in going through the divorce was the, that people tend, tend to pick sides. You know, you have friends that you think were your friends and they maybe pick the other side. And so now you're not friends with them anymore. And the same with relatives. You know, you when you marry, you're part of another family. And sometimes that other family also doesn't want to be in your life anymore. Did you experience anything like that? Uh, I did. I, I'm, I don't want to put any hostility of any kind to it or even even using the language like picking sides is, you know, I, I don't know that I want to put that language on my experience. Prior, prior to uh, making a decision to be divorced, I spoke with a, another minister and professor at a seminary that I'm very close to and had found out that he had been through a divorce. And I asked him if he had any, you know, words of wisdom for me as I was thinking down this, this path in my own life. And he really prepped me for this, for what you're talking about. He said, Jim, the one thing I can tell you is you're not going to pack up and carry with you even half of what you think you're going to carry with you. And he said, I'm not even talking about uh, tactile, concrete things. He said, I'm talking about relationships, memories, uh, you, you think you're going to carry one life into your next life, he said. But in fact, the truth is you're going to leave almost everything behind and you're going to have to reshape a new life. And uh, that was really true in, in, from my perspective. So I, I was kind of prepped for the fact that I wouldn't be carrying a lot of friendships or relationships. Uh, I, I found that there were some people who might have picked sides and said, I'm going to be friends with Jim, or I'm going to be friends with his uh, ex-wife. But I found the majority of people just weren't sure what to do. They weren't sure what to say. They had known us as a couple for 30 years, and it's, it puts them in a difficult situation of knowing how to relate now. And so they just kind of naturally let their life go where it went. Uh, I had left a, I was pastoring a church at the time and had retired from the pastorate and was writing and doing some other work. Um, I knew that my wife was going to stay at that particular faith community at that church. She was going to stay in the town where we had lived for 14 or 15 years. And, and you can just naturally see that if I'm the one leaving the town and leaving the church and leaving the space, um, that the majority of our social life or social structure and faith structure was still going to surround her necessarily. So I, I would not want any less for her but it kind of became her church, her social structure, her friends. And in my case, being the one who moved, I, I really did have to restructure. But some of them, I mean, you know, 
and some of them you think chose, but I've, I've bumped into them in other places. And oftentimes there's a big hug and tears and it's so good to see you and glad you're doing well. It's, I think it's just as awkward for the people who are a part of our life as it is for us when we go through a divorce. So it's, um, cause while we're reshaping our lives, they're reshaping their relationships with us. If that, makes sense and it's it is kind of awkward for them so yeah that's a good way to put it for sure um so you talked about the fact that you did the moving but you weren't pastoring anymore at that time right so how did you navigate kind of rediscovering who you were and re and rebuilding new acquaintances and new community well, and until I started pastoring, I still lived in the same town. I was, there was about a, I don't know, there wasn't a large gap. We were separated for a year and I lived in that town, but I traveled a lot. Uh, so I think, I don't think there was a lot of reshaping that went on the year we were separated. Um, that year I lived in the same town, but was in an apartment. She was in our home, our home and I began traveling uh, speaking at retreats and uh, writing and speaking at book, you know, events, these sorts of things, and really spent a lot of time in hotels or different places. So my friendships were very, very few. It was two or three people that I was already close to. There was really no new establishment of a community. Um, but I had been out of church work for about a year, then separated for a year. So it was about a two year gap. And that's when First Baptist Greenville, where I am now, contacted me. They actually contacted me while I was going through the divorce and uh, and initially said that that's a deal breaker. We don't think we can hire you since this is going on in your life. And as the months went by and conversations continued, they ended up hiring me eight years ago. And um, but they became this this church kind of became the new community. And I got to know people here and began to know people in the city here in Greenville. I'm already close to a church and people in the San Francisco area where I traveled a lot. So they became uh, a center of friendship and, uh, and support for me. Um, so the re the rebuilding kind of naturally happened structurally when I went to a new job, but for that year or so that I was in limbo, there's, I was just in limbo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't really make a lot of connections that year, nor did I feel a need to. I mean, I, I, the, the reshaping after divorce, and I'm sure we'll get into this has all these different levels, you know, practical levels and relational levels and spiritual levels. And, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that the healthiest among us who get through divorce are very aware of these levels and intentionally deal with them rather than, Hate to say it this way. We were talking before the show. We were talking about the even worse success of second and third marriages sometimes. And I think it's because people don't deal with these levels of transition. They just jump into another relationship to kind of fill the gap. And uh, I'm I'm glad that in my own life I've been able to kind of work through some of these transitional pieces to reshape my life. Uh, yeah, and I and I do want to get into that more because we've actually had a couple of questions. Um, on my Hey Boomer, What's Next group and just came in here and about second marriages, you know, like, how can I ever trust again? Um, do you think it's possible to fall in love again? 
you know, how do you even establish that? So let's talk about some of what you have to go through before you could even get to that place. Well, for me, and, and I'm only speaking from my own experience, but that's why you invited me to speak that's from right. my own <laughs> <laughs> uh, You know, it, it took me time to, um, I think it's important before the second marriage, at least for me, it was, and I'm not married again yet, so, so I'm still working through, I guess, but um, was to figure out who I was personally detached from another human being defining me. And um, some of that is so almost silly, simple, uh, but I can remember the first few nights in an apartment by myself, uh, putting leftovers in the refrigerator the way my wife had told me to put leftovers in the refrigerator, <laughs> rather than the way I wanted to put leftovers. <laughs> now, I know that's a really simple thing, but we do so much out of simple reaction to the person that we are married to or related to. That once we're divorced, it's I think it's important to go back and find out what is really you and what is what somebody else has pressed on you uh, over time. Because to fall in love again or to share a life with somebody else again, I think we need to know who we really are and, who, who, and not just presenting ourselves in a way that we've become accustomed to presenting ourselves. So what is it that I really enjoy doing as opposed to what have I accommodated or done and assimilated over years? Uh, what are the things that I truly enjoy personally? How do I like to do things? What are my natural habits and my natural um, ways of moving in the world? Uh, otherwise, we're moving somebody's getting to know us as we moved in relationship to someone else. And that's, you know, or we're reacting to people based on that relationship. So over time, I found myself. It's uh, I know how I move in the world. Uh, you were asking me before the show if I was nervous. No. Uh, I, I know who I am and how I move and what I think. And so it's uh, I'm very comfortable with that and it's easier for me. Um, there, there's also the whole relational level of how I want to relate to someone else. And uh, uh, as I think about second relationships, um, there's a companionship level that's important. I think the second time around that may not have been established the first time around. And I've talked to other persons who have successfully lived years in a second marriage and almost almost to a T, they've said to me, I married a friend the second time. It, it wasn't just a romantic you know, infatuation or this this moment of, aha, this is the one, but it's somebody that I knew and talked to and they they knew me. They knew me inside out. They've known me for years. It's it's that person I gravitated back to. And there was not only a sense of romance and I love this person, but I love this person in a companionship kind of way that was that was very important uh, to them. And for me, there was a whole uh, spiritual reshaping around this, uh, you know, and that's a whole nother piece of this conversation. I don't know if you want to jump into it now, but um, I had pretty well decided that as a Baptist minister in our tradition that I would not be pastoring a church again, and certainly not the largest progressive Baptist <laughs> church in the state of South Carolina. Um, you know, I just, the founding church of the Southern Baptist Convention, founding church of our seminary, founding church of our educational boards, that certainly wasn't where I thought my life was going to go. Uh, so I had to reshape a lot of my own uh, understanding about God and about divorce and about biblical texts. So it was a, that was another layer that, that I personally had to deal with. 
before I looked or wanted to engage another person in any kind of relationship, I needed these things cleared up in my own, my own life. And it's interesting, you know, of course, since I was divorced so much younger than you and, um, you know, did a lot of counseling, a lot of trying to figure out who I was. And I, I remember first time in, in my own place feeling like, yes, you know, <laughs> I'm free to do what I want to do and when I want to do it and how I want to do it. And I think, I think that's natural. It's, it's amazing. The week, the week after the separation, people would come to me and say, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I, I felt great. <laughs> I mean, and there's no, it's not a, I'm not dissing on the marriage. But the reason you left was because something was wrong and you needed to feel better. It's, you know, you're not, you don't leave and feel worse. It's, I kind of expect people who leave, if you don't feel better in the leaving, then I would question leaving because it's, uh, you left because there were issues. Yeah. yeah. And I think over time, sometimes you, you feel badly or you feel like that failure, or you, you know, what could I have done differently? How could I have managed this? But and every um, time we fill out a form, we have to check the box so that somebody can make you feel badly about the failure of your life. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I think that it's uh, the challenge with the second and third marriages, though, Jim, is that, you know, we've, we've done all this work. We think we've got it. And then you, you get into a relationship and some of those old habits of accommodating somebody or some of the codependent things that you might have done in the past, they seem to pop up again because that's your, that's been your history. That's what you learned. And so, you know, I think, I think what can help in that situation, and I'm not an expert either, is, um, is you have to be able to be in a relationship with somebody that you can have open communication with and that you can say, uh oh, I see that I'm doing this. And, you know, I, I need to not do that because that's going to sabotage what's happening here and it's going to sabotage me too. So I think, um, yeah, you got to have the courage to, with both parties to be able to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's, um, always difficult for the children. I don't care how old they are. So how, how did that conversation go with your adult children? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting because in my mind, I thought, okay, they are adults. Now they'll be able to handle this. And all three of them told me in the first year, it would have been easier on us if this had happened when we were children. So there's no, you know, it I think if it happens when you're children, they would say, well, I wish you'd have waited until we were adults. There's, right. Which is to say, it's just a painful process and it's hard regardless of, of when it happens. Uh, for my children, they were adults. They were in their 20s, um, young adults at the time. Uh, I was I was the one who chose to, to leave the marriage and... Um, Quite frankly, there was a lot of anger toward me in the first um, first six months to a year. From I have all three daughters, three daughters, and um, they were close enough that they verbalized it. Two of them verbalized it extensively, <laughs> <laughs> one of them sparingly. Um, and uh, you know, not to go through that whole process, but my general my general explanation to them was that 
parents live a life parallel to their children. Our children think they know us and think they know what's going on because they observe our lives. But we live a life in marriage that's kind of parallel to our children. And as I told my daughters, I could, I could sit and talk to you all night long about what the issues are, and I would never be able to explain to you why. It's, um, it, it's just this, this marriage is not going to exist going forward. And I'm not going to throw your mom under the bus, and I hope she doesn't throw me under the bus. And both of us, I know, love you and are going to continue to love you as we move forward. And um, I will say that at that point, I, I decided I was going to take the high road and and I wasn't going to say anything negative, um, regardless of what anyone said about me, whether it was family or friends or otherwise. And, and that was the that was the right road to take. Within a year, all three of my daughters had come back around to say, you know what, we don't understand all of it, but we understand and we know you love us and you've always been an emotional support for us and this doesn't change anything. And uh, our our relationships have gotten much, much closer uh, in these, these eight years. And, uh, I, yeah, I, it, you know, you can't, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't spare my children, whatever pain they felt either. You can't do it, but you can like everything else we're talking about today, you can reshape where you move going forward. And I think the best way to do that is to do it by caring for and being positive about the person you were married to and the other side of the family. I, I don't think there's anything gained with our children by continuing to be or being negative in any way. And uh, whatever issues there were between their mother and me, um, they don't have those issues. Their mother, their mother loves them and you know they have their own relationship and, and that's what I want them to build. So. Yeah. And, and I, and I felt the same way. And, um, you know, of course I told you mine were so little, they were two and four. Um, but they do still have a relationship with their father. And at the time, my daughter who was four, she was the most angry with me for many years. Um, and went to live with her dad when she was 15. But now that they're both adults, they both have said to me, I can't imagine you ever being married to dad. <laughs> they can see how different we are. And, and I think, you know, part of my experience was to be a good role model for them, to show them that women can take care of ourselves and we can take care of a household and we can take care of children and we can pay our own bills and have our own jobs and all of that stuff and be involved in the community. And um, that was important to me to be able to show them a good role model that, you know, I, it, not that I, I would like at some point to be a part of a couple again, but to also be able to show them you can do it on your own if you have to, and it can be okay. It can be good even. Yeah. So I think it's interesting when our children get to know us as individuals and I, my children know their mother now without me buffering whatever is between them and their mother. And, and they know me without their mother buffering whatever negativity I may have. They, they know us for who we are and relate to us that way. And I'm sure somewhere, I mean, They've said they wish things could have worked out and 
but they also get it now. I mean, they know us individually and it's, it's like you say, they kind of get it and go, yeah, I see it. And uh, I know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you um, mentioned the spiritual perspective and when we talked um, earlier in the week, you mentioned um, God divorcing the Israelites (laughs) 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 and only you, Jim Dant can come up with (laughs) um, a way of phrasing that. So would you talk about that a little bit? Well, it was, it was part of my own spiritual process and um, I'm a writer. And so, you know, it's one of those oddities. You go through something like this and you know that at some point you're going to have to write about it. And um, it's been eight years and it's about time. I mean, I've, I've been, playing with the ideas this whole time, did not want to write anything quickly because I needed to get past the event and process it and kind of figure out who I was and where I was going to land. But yeah, I've been, uh, I'm, I am, I'm about ready to jump in and finish this manuscript. I've got it outlined and have been looking at it, staring at it for years. Uh, it's kind of my own spiritual processing and I hope it helps some other people if they struggle with that side of it as well. The working title of the book, and I don't want any other writers who are watching your show to steal this and run off with it because it's not printed yet or in copyright. Uh, But the working title of the book is Worshiping a Divorced God. And um, the, the premise for me moving in was moving into this subject biblically, because I'm a minister and deal with biblical literature, was, you know, does God even know what this is like? Does God even know if 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 God knows all things and and connects to us and how in the world would God know what it's like to be divorced? And it's kind of interesting when you start moving through particularly the Hebrew scriptures or what in the Christian church we would call the old Testament It's probably most vivid in the prophet Jeremiah in the third chapter, God actually gives Israel a decree of divorce. He says, I divorce you three times. And Israel has not been faithful to God and has worshiped other gods. And the language used is divorce. And God goes through a divorce. Now he ends up remarrying Israel before it's all over again. And, uh, but the fact remains that God is a divorced God. And within the Christian tradition that I'm in, we even talk about the old covenant and the new covenant. And the church sees itself as the bride of Christ or the bride of God. And it's the second bride, though, coming after Israel, having been God's first love and God's first bride. And uh, we, we have this language all fused into the way that we talk about God. But not once from a pulpit had I ever heard a minister talk about God as divorced or knowing what it was like to be in a covenant relationship and having to get out of that covenant relationship. Whether he went back into it or not, the point is God understands being in a covenant relationship and having to, to get out of the covenant relationship. And um, so that's a part of the part of the premise of the book. The other has to do with vows and the importance of vows. You know, if there was any argument that I heard during, because by the way, other people of faith can be very hard on you. I bet. <laughs> you are doing something that they don't think is right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the phrase I probably heard more than anything else was, well, you took a vow. You took a vow before God. You took a vow, and now you're breaking this vow. And um, uh, part of the one of the chapters in the book is deals with the judge Jephthah in the book of Judges. And to make the short story short, Jephthah is going out to war against one of the enemies of Israel, and he tells God, if you will 
if you will, uh, let me be victorious over my enemies. When I come home, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my yard to you, expecting one of the animals to come out. And so he is victorious in battle. And when he comes home, his daughter is the first thing to step out of the yard toward Jephthah. And Jephthah made a vow to God, so he kills his daughter and uh, is seen as faithful in some way. And um, my argument is, there are some vows we make in life that do not lead to life, they lead to death. And uh, Jephthah's better move would have been to fall on his knees and say, God, I made a stupid vow <laughs> and it's gonna lead to the death of my daughter and I'm not gonna keep this vow. And I think God would have been pleased with, the, with him saying, I made a vow that's just not leading to life. And uh, but that's not the way we're taught. We were, we were taught you make the vow and that's just what it is. And, and Right. And that's where the sense of failure and shame comes in. When is there any is there any shame in saying I made a promise I couldn't keep? And of course, integrated into that chapter is the fact we who I got married when I was 20 or 21. I mean, there were a hundred decisions I could not have made when I was 20 or 21 to dictate the rest of my life. And yet we hold each other to this vow in a way that's much different. And I in no way want to demean marriage or make it, you know, where you shouldn't take it seriously. But really making a promise at 20, not knowing who you're going to be at 50, boy, that is a, that's a, that's a stretch. Um, so the book deals with a lot of other biblical texts and a lot of other angles, but those are two of the primary ones that God does understand uh, the idea of covenant and covenant breaking. God has been through it God's self and that every vow is not meant to be kept. There, there are vows that if they are not leading to life, the best thing we can do is say we're sorry and cut another path. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because and kind of that's how I felt when I was getting, I, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I couldn't live. I was in like locked in this little cage and I had to get out. I had mm -hmm. to get out to save my life. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a physical abuse or anything, but it was emotionally just gonna, I was gonna go away. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I will throw in here that there are people in faith communities that stay in physically abusive relationships because that vow becomes um, so sacred, both mm -hmm. internally and by the pressure they receive externally from faith communities. And uh, yeah. yeah, and I, I don't think that's right. No, no. Um, so much more we could say, but we're going to run out of time. So I, I, Hey Boomer is about a community of people that are really trying to stay engaged, stay relevant, find purpose, find meaning in their lives. And, you know, obviously today we've been talking about marriage and relationship and divorce. And so I'm wondering if there are two or three takeaways that you feel like you would like to leave with the audience today. Hmm. I wish you would give me a heads up on that one. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I would, I think my, my one takeaway would be, um, that every life can be reshaped. There, there were moments, particularly as a Baptist minister, in those two years I was trying to discern what I was going to do. I thought, if I do this, my life is over. If I do this, my vocation is over. If I do this, there's not going to be a path for me. And you know, the one takeaway I would say is, it, it 
whatever you're going through, there's a way to cut the path. There's a way to reshape your life. There's a, there's a way to find meaning and purpose and, and move on. You may not see it at the time, but it's, it's there and you just have to kind of keep moving forward. And the other is from a faith perspective. Um, I, I'm going to go back to that mystic moment on the bench. If you stay, I'm going to be with you. And if you leave, I'm going to be with you. It's uh, for me, the divine's presence in my life is not based on whether I turn to the right, turn to the left, make the right decision, or the wrong decision or misstep here or misstep there. That that presence in my life is a constant that I don't have to worry about. I don't have to let shame let go of it. That's a I've learned to be comfortable with God is with me, whithersoever I goest, you know, as the King James version says. And I don't yeah. have to question that. That's a that's a given. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. So we can recover and rediscover ourselves, no matter what we're going through. And basically, what you're saying is we're never really alone. Yeah. We always have the faith, some universal spirit whatever you want to call it watching over us so yeah thank you jim um, i want to let people know how they can reach you if they have any further questions for you you can email jim at jim at faithlab.com and like i said if you want to talk about this further you can also email me at wendy at heyboomer.biz Today's show is my 103rd show, and I am taking the month of July off. <laughs> I'm going to catch my breath, regroup a little bit, um, go to Glacier National Park, like I said, um, and hopefully do a, a recording there that I can share with you. But ways that you can support what we're doing here on Hey Boomer Go to roadscholar.org slash heyboomer. Check out their trips. Sign up for a trip. Um, they really do a great job with that. Um, look, check out the Real Eats. Get 40% get off for the next four weeks on food that you order. Use July 4 as the code. Super easy, good, healthy meals. Um, connect with me on the What's Next cohort sign up for that i like i said i only take six so uh seating is limited so check out heyboomer.biz slash coaching and if you are not able or if your friends are not able to listen to this live have them go listen on a podcast and please rate and review it so thank you all for tuning in today remember that i encourage you to live with relevance live with passion and live with purpose. And remember that you are never too old to set another goal or dream a new dream. Thank you, Jim, for what you shared today. Thank you. My name is Wendy Green, and this has been Hey Boomer. <laughs>